Welcome to this highlights program from an education symposium presented at the 2009 American Society of Breast Surgeons meeting in San Diego. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. For this meeting, we asked in advance the ASBS membership to submit cases from their practices with related questions for faculty members, Drs. Melody Coblade, Kevin Fox, Frankie Holmes, David Hyams, and Terry Mamanus. And after the symposium, I met individually with the faculty to discuss additional cases and questions. We also discussed some of the most important journal articles and meeting presentations in breast cancer over the last year, and these are referenced in the accompanying booklet and researchtopractice.com. To begin, I asked the panel to consider a case submitted by Dr. Edward Kim from Denver, a 54-year-old woman with a 2-centimeter triple-negative invasive ductal carcinoma. The patient also had a history of mild lupus. Dr. Kim wanted to know if the panel would consider breast-conserving surgery and radiation therapy in this woman with a connective tissue disease, and if so, would partial breast irradiation be considered? Dr. Hyams began the discussion. We've actually had two patients in our institution over the several years that I have been there that have had connective tissue disease, one with lupus and one with scleroderma. And these become relative contraindications, although the rate of problems is relatively lower, estimated about 20%. Almost all the data is retrospective. There are a few large series. Most of the series are really quite small. So in fact, there isn't an absolute right answer for the management of these patients. I think that one of the issues that may be changing a little bit is we do have better options for those patients who choose not to go forward with breast conservation with skin sparing and even nipple sparing mastectomy. I think there are opportunities to avoid that, and that becomes a much more palatable option for some women who wish to avoid the risk. Terry, what about the issue of PBI in a patient with connective tissue disease? Is that better or worse, do you think, maybe in terms of standard radiation? I mean, clearly this is such a rare presentation that we certainly don't have much data, at least to my knowledge, no data to say that PBI is any more safe or less safe than whole breast radiation. And although obviously people will use PBI and this society has done a lot of work on PBI, I would still say that a patient like this, based on the fact that we're running the B39 trial still, I would offer her regular full breast radiation until we have data to tell us that it's safe to give partial breast radiation without increasing local recurrence. So actually, the follow-up here on this patient was she actually decided against breast conservation, had mastectomy with reconstruction. I couldn't understand that, you know, really understanding what the risks are here. A related issue in terms of breast conservation is the use of PBI, and the NSABP and RTOG are doing a landmark study evaluating this modality, which can be given as either brachytherapy, conformal external beam treatment, or the mammocyte balloon catheter. I asked Dr. Hyams which of the three allowed PBI techniques are being utilized. I think B39 will be probably the best trial to look at in an objective way differences because it certainly allows patients in who have external beam approaches, catheter brachytherapy, as well as mammocyte. 
I think catheter brachytherapy got a really kind of a bum rap the way it used to be utilized. I think it still can cause problems if it is not really carefully delivered because of the potential for catheter site scarring, which can be worsened if seeds are in close proximity. However, I think that with really good technique, that shouldn't be an issue. The same, of course, is true with tools like mammocyte. It's very important to make certain that there's an adequate distance between skin and the cavity. All of these require approaches in which the surgeon and the radiation oncologist work together, and I think that's the bottom line, to pick the optimal one. And I don't think there's enough data today in cross-comparison to say which is better. Terry, what about intraoperative radiation therapy, the target machine? What's happening with that? Is the study happening, or what's going on? Yeah, I mean, I think there is a study that Professor Baum is running in Europe, and it's accruing well. Again, you have to do the studies because you cannot be sure that just a short course of intraoperative radiotherapy will result in the same local control as whole breast radiotherapy. And you can also use it as a boost instead of a boost in intraoperative radiotherapy. But again, all this need to be put through the randomized clinical trials process to see what is the cosmetic outcome after these procedures and what is the long-term local control rate. So we want to go on to this case And it's not that unusual of a case, but what we're going to do is we're actually going to discuss this in four different modules tonight, the same patient, just to show you where we are with breast cancer, that there's so much you can just talk about one patient. So David, we want to start out with you, because there's a local therapy issue here with this 48-year-old woman who was postmenopausal. So she has a 1.1 centimeter grade 2 infiltrating ductal cancer resected and one of two sentinel nodes is found to have a two millimeter metastasis on H&E. The tumor is ER positive, PR positive, but not as positive, HER2 negative, KI67 is 11%. So we want to ask first, what about completion axillary lymph node dissection in this lady with a two millimeter tumor in a sentinel node, yes or no? So David, Well, this is the patient that classically we, of course, would do a completion axillary lymph node dissection, but I think there is compelling data not to. In addition to the original studies that Armand Giuliano had published suggesting that in 70% of those patients with a single sentinel node, that was the only node that was positive, we have data from NSABP B32 and a very nice multivariate analysis that was done by Tom Julian that looks at the issue of factors that may predict for lack of involvement. And as it turns out, this lady meets many, if not all of them. That is relatively small focus in a single lymph node, one lymph node involved only out of more than one or several, and no other unique high-risk features. So I think this is the kind of individual that it would be not at all unreasonable to offer no further therapy in the axilla, and I think her risk for a local regional issue in the axilla would be small. Her risk, of course, is her risk of systemic disease, and I'm sure that's one of the questions that you will go on to discuss. So, Melody, you're going to be the oncologist who's going to see this woman. Are you going to be okay with the fact that she hasn't had a completion node dissection with a two-millimeter focus there? Are you okay with that? Pretty young lady, too. She's 48. I'm not... And I realize that there are models, and models are great, but if this woman has more involved nodes, it would make a huge difference in terms of my approach to her. So I would tilt her taking a closer look while sharing 
these various models with her, and if she decides that she's willing to go with the models, which would predict she is not going to have more nodes, then that's fine. It's always interesting to see how the number affects somebody. We're going to talk about numbers later in terms of small node negative tumors, how big, 0.4, 0.7. And so actually, David, I presented a case to Melody, and in that case, it was a patient who had a 0.6 centimeter tumor in a sentinel node. Still okay without doing a node dissection? Well, I think the issue of node dissection, first of all, if you're the surgeon who did the original procedure, you have to feel comfortable that it was a clear and straightforward sentinel node case. You have to be certain that you didn't feel and that you make the effort to feel for any enlarged abnormal nodes. I think, again, I'd be happier if it was six millimeters and there were four sentinel nodes because clearly having one out of more fit Julian's analysis better. But it is an area of still controversy and debate. Tricky, really tricky. Turns out this lady incidentally had three positive nodes when she had her axillary node dissection. Melody was like, oh, yes. <laughs> That's why I wanted to ask her if it was two. Terry? Yeah, make a comment. I mean, obviously, we all use the Sloncater nomograms and the other nomograms to estimate risk of residual disease in these patients. The overall, the meta-analysis that was published showed that patients with micromets have about a 20% risk of residual lymph node involvement. But even if you do the Sloncater nomogram, it's very rarely to get it under 10% or 8%. And then you ask yourself, if I know that I leave nodes behind in 8% of the times, am I comfortable with that? If you translate that into the sentinel node, false negative rate, you'll be comfortable with a false negative rate of 20% or 25%, and nobody would be comfortable with that, because when you do the math, essentially, it's almost the same thing. So if I get to about 5% or less, then maybe I'll think about not doing it on the slow catering nomogram. But other than that, I think it's very hard to get that number so low. The other issue is also, are you in surgery at the same time? In other words, if you find that out at the time of surgery, I think most of us will complete the axial dissection. If you find that the day, two days later, that's another issue because then you have to think about what to do. Let's assume that an axillary lymph node dissection is done and they're all negative. So all she has is that two millimeter focus. Would you generally offer her PBI? as an option. 48-year-old woman, 1.1 centimeter tumor. What do you think about that, David? Is there a contraindication to PBI in this situation? I don't think there's a contraindication. I think one has to make decisions of in what environment PBI is useful or not, particularly outside of clinical trials, and it becomes a matter of philosophy and issue. I treat patients in the desert southwest, so my inclination to treat or to offer PBI or to push that as an option is partly due to access issues. If somebody has to drive two hours for radiation therapy, that may be their only option for breast conservation. I don't think there's a contraindication absolutely in this patient, and certainly this would be a patient who would have met criteria for B39. All right, well, let's move now to the endocrine question, Kevin. Now, this lady is a young postmenopausal woman, but yet it does seem that she's postmenopausal and 48 years old. She's got a 1.1 centimeter tumor with this evidence of axillary involvement in the sentinel node. What about hormone therapy? It does seem that in the routine postmenopausal situation, Kevin, that AIs right now, at least to start, have kind of become accepted. I think so. David? I mean, the only thing that needs to be stressed is if one's considering an AI, one would want to be pretty certain that she is, in fact, truly postmenopausal. And certainly, if she'd had chemotherapy, just to throw that into the mix, and she's node positive, you'd like to be sure that 
she isn't just postmenopausal from the therapy and doesn't go back. And those patients are really very good candidates to start on tamoxifen and switches. You get a little more time under your belt to make sure that their FSH doesn't change. With all the controversy about the optimal choice of adjuvant endocrine therapy in postmenopausal patients, it's easy to forget that there are three very similar aromatase inhibitors, and none have been compared head-to-head in a Phase three study. Dr. Maminus commented. The only way to know will be when we finish and report the randomized trials, the MA27 that has compared anastrozole to exomestin, and the phase trial that compares the not positive patients, letrozole to anastrozole. The perception is, by indirect evidence, that letrozole is more active than anastrozole, but again, it's a perception based on estrogen levels, and perhaps from the neoadjuvant setting where anastrozole was superior to tamoxifen, but in the impact trial, anastrozole was not quite superior to tamoxifen. But again, this could be been due to chance alone. There are small numbers. So unless we do the randomized trials, I don't think we can say definitively. All the hazard ratios are in the same ballpark. Frankie, what about the issue of whether you do it five years with an aromatase inhibitor? We have trials like Terry's trial, you know, trying to study this. But what about outside a protocol setting? We've become really sensitive to the risk of recurrence in years five to 10. And a patient with a node positive tumor, maybe 20% recurrence rate in that five to 10 year window How do you find the discussions if a patient can't go on the study going with your patients when they hit the five-year point? Really, this is a difficult question because until we have the data, we're flying by the seat of our pants. And of course, we know the bone marrow transplant study was one of those issues where we knew the right answer and found out that what we knew wasn't correct. So definitely, we need to have the results of these studies. However, in patients that do have a significant risk of relapse, especially invasive lobular patients that you wonder if you ever cure, patients who are multiply node positive patients, I think we're pretty convinced that the cardiac safety risks that we were concerned might be a problem because of the estrogen lowering effect and possible lipid abnormalities. They haven't become a significant problem to us. We've also learned how to be very effective at managing and watching the bones and looking at vitamin D levels to make sure that even if you're getting your calcium and Fosamax, it might not be absorbed if your vitamin D levels aren't good. So I think we're learning to manage all the toxicities as long as the joint problems aren't overwhelming. That if I have multiply node positive patients, we'll have this discussion. And depending on their symptoms, we'll decide to continue or not to continue. Melody, what about the issue of when people hit the five-year point? Roughly, What fraction of these people have just cruised through the five years and no big problem other than maybe financial to continue it, as opposed to people who just barely make it, they're having arthralgias, et cetera? You know, how does this sort of play out in your own practice from that point of view? It's unusual for a patient who's made it to five years to be having a lot of symptoms. Those are usually the ones who drop out early on. That kind of makes sense. Final point, Kevin, when I brought up this Cusick paper, and I actually interviewed him in San Antonio. If you didn't receive the program, it's on our website. I thought it was really cool. I mean, it reminded me, and actually Kathy Pritchard in the editorial talked about the rash that you get with EGFR inhibitors, and like lung cancer, the more rash, the better anti-tumor effect. Similar kind of thing in terms of this, more vasomotor symptoms, more arthralgias, and patients do better. What do you think? Well, it's provocative. It wasn't the intent of the ATAC trial. And so in theory, you can't look back and decide that you're going to 
say something else in conclusion, but be that as it may, this was not an observation that was made in a few dozen patients. This was an observation that was made in what, in effect, in the end, was well over 3,000 people. So there may be some substance to this. The usefulness of this, I think, to practitioners is simply that patients who are discouraged by the side effects and who are on the verge of discontinuing their medication because of them can be counseled based on this piece of information, which was taken from thousands of people, that there may be some merit to pressing on. This was a three-month endpoint. People that develop these toxicities tend to manifest them relatively quickly. They tend to complain about them relatively quickly, and they do tend to dissipate over time. I think it is entirely legitimate to use this piece of information to coax people into being adherent to their medication when they're getting discouraged about toxicities. David, the implications to patient counseling are huge. So, you know, maybe you have a patient who's having some arthralgias, not too bad, and you go, hey, you know, maybe this means it's going to help you more. You don't want to see people miserable and really suffering, you know, certainly. I think one of the questions that comes up is this sort of 2D6 story in which we don't know what the 2D6 is. In other words, are those individuals with side effects and symptoms those who have higher levels of drug and metabolic rates that are different than those who don't? And unfortunately, since we don't have pharmacokinetics on the patients who enter the trial, that's something for supposition in future study. Terry, what about the practical issue of CYP2D6? I mean, you can order the test. A lot of researchers say, don't, we don't really know what it means yet. It's not really ready for prime time. It makes sense to identify people who might not benefit from tamoxifen. Do you ever order it on your patients? I actually don't order it up front, but in a patient that... I start on tamoxifen, if they come back in about three months and say, you know, I have no symptoms whatsoever, maybe I'll think about it, particularly if I have another option for that patient. If tamoxifen is the only option, then what else are you going to do different? But I do it more selectively in patients that have no symptoms. So we're going to go into another case, Melody, that was sent in here, and this is from Dr. Laura Pomeranke, 28-year-old woman emphasis on the 28, with a 1.4 centimeter ERPR positive HER2 negative tumor, sentinel lymph node evaluation negative. So, you know, not such an uncommon situation, but the question is about chemo in this patient. Would you recommend an oncotype? I think most people, you don't want to order something unless you're going to use it. So, Melody, what about this? 28 years old, 1.4 centimeter tumor. This lady, absolutely for sure, five years ago was going to get chemo. What do you think? Well, I think no one on the planet knows the answer to this question. In terms of the data that inform us, the B14 information, as far as Oncotype DX is concerned, did identify age as an independent risk factor for recurrence age being defined as age less than 50. When the recurrence score was placed into the multivariate analysis, age dropped out as a significant factor, but the p-value at that point was 0.08, and I trust that there were very few 28-year-olds who were in the study. So I don't know the answer to the question, but the nice thing about 28-year-olds is that they're much more willing than 88-year-olds to participate in the decision-making that occurs And if this woman understands that we don't have a lot of information on women who are very young, that she has, in general, a very good prognosis based on tumor size and tumor grade, and if she is interested in having no chemotherapy, if she has a low recurrence score, then I would order it. 
David, what's your perspective looking at this? Would you be okay with omitting chemotherapy in a 28-year-old woman? I think if Oncotype has taught us anything, it is that tumor biology is tumor biology, something that Bernie Fisher said many years ago. And just because we're scared because somebody's 28, just because we're concerned about somebody with a positive lymph node, which she'll come to discuss, if therapy doesn't work because the biology of the tumor isn't suitable, then the question, as Terry and others have brought out, is that we just don't know well enough. But certainly every indication we've had thus far in which there have been adequate sample sizes, the fact is, is when you have a low recurrence score, those tumors tend to be non-responsive biologically to cytotoxic therapy. And just because we're concerned about those patients doesn't change the effectiveness against that biology. So Terry, what about age and oncotype? And what about tumor size? How big can it be and you're still okay with it? Well, the age issue is important, and I can mellow this comments that there weren't a lot of patients like that in the NSABP before the invalidation study. In fact, there were under 40, I think there were 16 patients, 16 patients with a low recurrent score, and none of them recurred. Zero out of 16 is not necessarily a big series, but it's encouraging that sort of if you had a low recurrent score, you still did well if you're young. On the other hand, AIDS was related to the proportion of high recurrence scores. In other words, younger patients tend to have more likely high recurrence scores than older patients. So that can explain some of the biology of AIDS. I also agree with Melody's comment that when you put the recurrence score in the multivariate analysis, AIDS fell out, but then the hazard ratio was still not close to one. It was closer to one, but not quite. So there could still be some effect, as we see, of course, with the adjuvant online also retaining prognostic ability. But the predictive ability of the test obviously would indicate that if any benefit, it would be small. On the other hand, in 28-year-old, I think studies have shown that these patients have poor outcome. Whether the benefit from chemotherapy, that's a whole other question, but their outcome is actually much poorer than a 40-year-old or a 45-year-old with the same tumor characteristics. So you have to have a very reasonable discussion with her. As far as size goes, I think the same is true. Oncotype predicts outcome of patients in small tumors and bigger tumors. We didn't have many more than four centimeters in B14, but as we're going to discuss later on, obviously data with not positive patients, if you start being willing to order these tests with a patient with one positive node potentially or two, then you should be even willing to order it in somebody that has a three and a half or four centimeter tumor because the risk of recurrence is not higher than somebody with positive nodes. And again, you order the test mostly for the predictive benefit, not for the prognostic benefit. Another assay that's being developed to assist in management decisions in the adjuvant setting is the so-called mammoprint assay, as commented on by Dr. Maminus. There are a couple of issues. One is obviously the practical one that the mammoprint assay requires fresh tissue, which is not something that we normally would do to handle the breast specimen when we take it out. Usually it goes into formalin and eventually paraffin. At that time, you also don't know the nodal status, or at least you don't know it definitively. So there has to be another mechanism by which you can procure the material and save it until you're able to order the test. So that's a practical issue. In terms of sort of how the test is developed, though, particularly because it's based on fresh tissue versus the Oncotype DX, which is based on formerly embedded tissue, 
It allows to perform additional validation studies based on patients that have been accrued to clinical trials many years before. Not many clinical trials have fresh tissue in a repository that you can go back and do what we did in B14 and B20, and now in the attack round, the SWOG8814. So you can see that the evidence behind, for example, the recurrence scores continues to increase, although we don't hear a lot of evidence from the MAMA print in terms of validating its prognostic ability. And on the other hand, we haven't heard much about its predictive ability. It's possible that two tests actually are similar in terms of who they classify as low and high risk. Another issue, of course, is that the mammogram by design is a dichotomous test, so either low or high, although some patients probably have gene expression profiles that would be somewhere in the middle, and those were arbitrarily classified to low or high. The recurrence score, obviously, as a continuous variable, gives you more of a true biology expression of the tumor. So, you know, we use Oncotype in our practice, and we do that because of all these issues, the practical and, again, the evidence issues behind the test, and the clinical guidelines also support it. But, you know, it's possible that those two tests will perform equally well at some point. So I want to spend a minute or two kind of teasing out this issue of Oncotype in patients with node-positive tumors. I want to go back to the 48-year-old woman, 1.1 centimeter tumor. Let's assume, I'm not sure where this woman is right now, but let's just assume she had a completion axillary node dissection that was negative. So she does have tumor in one sentinel node, 48 years old. Would you recommend an archetype for her, or would you not, because it's not going to change what you're going to do? I wouldn't have, but I can certainly understand why so many people would have felt otherwise. You have to realize that the notion that giving chemotherapy to any breast cancer patient with positive lymph nodes is so entrenched in what we do and has been entrenched for so long that it's going to be really hard to get off that train. Conversely, trying to look at it intellectually, I don't think any sensible oncologist doubts that there's a subset of node-positive women for whom chemotherapy is a colossal waste of their time. And the Oncotype test in, in this context certainly gives some weight to the notion that there may be people for whom chemotherapy is a waste of time. The problem I guess we all have and the justification we all give for continuing to avoid doing it in node-positive women is that this clinical trial, it did use a chemotherapy, which is probably felt to be inferior to what we use today. No taxane. The number of women who had low scores was not a very high number, and there may be some benefit for chemotherapy even in low-score patients, which is not discernible based on the way the statistics fell out. And then third, it was a study that was limited to postmenopausal women, and there is a belief, at least for some people, that the relative benefits of chemotherapy may be greater as you get younger. So in our 48-year-old, I would be very skittish about doing it. Melody, agree, disagree, or in between? Well, I agree with everything that Kevin said. I think also that this is another situation where the patient is part of the discussion. And with this being a solitary 2-millimeter metastasis, many patients in the B20 trial were probably like this because they didn't do serial sectioning of a sentinel node. So if it was her desire to avoid chemotherapy, if she had a very low recurrence score, then I would order it. So just to follow up, because we got this great case. When I saw this case, and this is from Dr. Lisa Curcio from Orange County, California. When I saw this, I was like, oh, definitely, we got to put this one up there. 61-year-old lady, 7-millimeter, ERP, or positive, herpes negative, tubular cancer. Closest margin, 5 millimeters. Okay, so question one for the surgeons on the panel. You can address this one. 
What would you recommend in terms of local therapy in this situation? I'll ask David what he would do for this woman. Well, again, this is a patient who I would, in fact, agree with the group for sentinel lymph node biopsy and if negative RT or PBI. Although this is clearly that kind of patient that you can involve in discussion, and if this was the amalgam of the patient with lupus and these findings, this would be the kind of patient I would say, you know, you have low-risk disease, and there are issues that could be discussed. Certainly the incidence of node positivity in this patient would be exceedingly small. Would you want to see an oncotype, tubular cancer? David, what do you think? My guess is that if you looked at this, a lot of those patients would fall into the low end of the intermediate scale. I mean, obviously, that's why we're doing Taylor X, is to try to better define what happens in that group. I would not get oncotype, and this is one of those patients that I do not get oncotype in. I mean, do we know in the modern era sort of the natural history of these special tumors? I talked to the pathologist who did this, and he was saying he wasn't even that confident in the pathologic diagnoses, that a lot of these are sort of mixed, et cetera. Terry, what do we know about the natural history of, for example, tubular cancer in the modern era? I mean, if it is a pure tubular carcinoma, the prognosis is excellent, even if they have positive notes. So that much we know, but the key is pure tubular and not a mixed type where you have also an NOS invasive ductal carcinoma. And I think these results actually support that, where the majority of the patients are actually low recurrence score, and even, yeah, again, 99% of the patients and a half are low intermediate. It's unlikely, probably, that these tumors benefit from chemotherapy. So I agree with David that probably in tubular carcinoma probably won't get a recurrence score. One of the most controversial issues in management of early breast cancer is the patient with a small node-negative tumor, particularly if the lesion is HER2 positive. And Dr. Thomas Frazier submitted a case of a 65-year-old woman with a 5-millimeter ER and HER2 positive lesion with three negative sentinel nodes. Dr. Fox began the discussion. I don't think we can assume that this is a low-risk cancer. I think one of the other things that's been entrenched in what we do too long is this notion that the size of an invasive cancer trumps everything else when we decide to make a treatment decision. That probably isn't the case in a situation like this. This is an HER2 positive cancer, which even at small size can be a notorious misbehavior. And assuming that this is a healthy 65-year-old, I think she should be afforded the best possible opportunity to minimize her risk of recurrence and death from breast cancer, which I think is probably substantial. And to do that, and to do that the right way, you would have to treat her with trastuzumab. And at the moment, if we're going to choose to treat a patient with trastuzumab, by default, she should also get chemotherapy with that trastuzumab. So I wouldn't withhold any therapy for this patient based on either her age or the notion that she's got a good prognosis because her cancer is small, because I think that would be incorrect. So, Melody, now it's just coming up on four years since the fateful ASCO meeting in 2005 where these data were presented. I think that we have precious little information on T1A tumors. Most of it is on T1B tumors in this less than a centimeter category. And I would probably opt just for hormone therapy in this patient. As far as have I ever given TRAS as a single agent in a hormone receptor positive patient, yes, I have in patients who've refused chemotherapy. 
And in patients who had comorbidities such that I was afraid that the chemotherapy might cause significant harm. So Terry, I interviewed your colleague and leader, Dr. Walmark, recently for our program, and he asked him to present a few cases from his practice. And I was stunned that he presented a case of a patient with a HER2-positive tumor where he got an oncotype. Is there any role for oncotype in HER2-positive tumors? Well, I think the role of oncotype is limited for HER2-positive tumors because we kind of know the result, and the result is that invariably, in most cases, the result will be high. And that's another reason why you want to pick chemotherapy and trastuzumab for a patient like this, because if you did the oncotype, you found that they have almost invariably high recurrent score, very rarely intermediate, or almost never low. Anecdotally, maybe there are a couple of cases out there, but the majority fall into the high categories in the B14 validation. Out of 55 patients with positive disease, 50 had high recurrent score, 5 intermediate, and no one had low. So... You can order the test, but you pretty much know the results. So typically we do not order the test for her to positive patients. Just a couple quick points in closing. This issue of bisphosphonates, Melody, they report a 35% relative risk reduction. Granted, not that many recurrences, but a third less recurrences with something that had almost no side effects. And then Martine Picard says, well, we just need to wait till San Antonio. The Azure trial is going to report, and then we'll really know, well, it didn't report. Now we're six months later, and I don't think most patients are hearing about this at all. I don't know that they should get it or it's standard of care, but I wonder if they ought to hear about it. What do you think, Melody? I agree with you. I think that oncologists are, in general, cautious, and we're used to thinking about the hammer, adding another chemotherapy drug, and we like to see two randomized trials to confirm an initial observation, and that was basically what was recommended at ASCO. But I have to tell you that when you're sitting in the clinic and you've got a patient with multiple positive nodes and you can give them two squirts of zoledronate in a year that might potentially reduce the risk by a third with no osteonecrosis reported, which is the main thing we're concerned about, I have been recommending it more and more. Yeah, it's really a tough question. We desperately need some more data. So final point, this is a 43-year-old woman, two centimeter ER positive, no negative, one millimeter metastatic focus, and one of three sentinel nodes. She gets adjuvant chemo, five years of tamoxifen. Then I imagine she becomes postmenopausal because she gets an AI and nastrozole. And then she comes in one day and says, oh, my urologist gave me vagifem because of the problem I'm having with my vagina and atrophic vaginitis, and it really worked great. As a matter of fact, my hot flashes went away. So the question we want to ask is, what do you say to this patient? Is it okay to keep going short term? You can just keep using it long term, or you need to stop? We've had this dilemma out there, David, about HRT in breast cancer survivors, and there was a study that finally got done that actually showed more recurrences in women who got HRT. What do you think about this situation? Is she getting HRT, and does it need to not continue, or what do you think? What would you say to her, David? Well, topical estrogens are absorbed, although in very, very, very small amounts. I mean, I'm always more comfortable in those patients who are on tamoxifen because I think at least there's some blockade of receptor. And that's sometimes a discussion I actually have with patients when considering the options of tamoxifen and AIs, particularly since 
the overall advantage, although we talk about a hazard rate reduction of AIs is 20%, it really is absolutely about three. And one of the points that was shown on the slides of Mitch Dowsett's presentation but wasn't actually mentioned was, and it's just exploratory, but that the reduction in risk of AIs was really in the high-risk group of patients only who received the high oncotype score patients, not in the others. Whether that plays out, who knows? So short answer is I tell patients life is about living. Obviously, if you're miserable, you have to make decisions about that. But that in a perfect world, it's best to avoid topical estrogens, particularly if you're on an AI. They may be used short-term with perhaps a little less concern on tamoxifen. That's interesting, though, Frankie. Now that I think about it, remember there was a time that a lot of the Europeans were using HRT and tamoxifen at the same time. Would you say to her, look, if you're really miserable and this has really helped you, maybe we should switch you to tamoxifen, and then maybe you're compromising her treatment for her relapse? We do that all the time, really. Again, based on the data that was shown about starting on an AI and crossing over to tamoxifen, we have patients that are having significant dyspareunia. They're having recurrent urinary tract infections, incontinence issues. So we switch them to tamoxifen and give them the vagifem as long as their gynecologists are comfortable following their uterus. The other thing that was interesting, Dowsett's group did look at estrogen levels after patients were given aromatase inhibitor therapy and given vagifem. And there were some women whose estrogen levels went up into the 400 picomoles, so they had excellent absorption. However, about a third of the patients did recornify the vagina, and that precluded further absorption, so the levels went down. So it was a little bit of a self-correcting problem. I guess the problem for us is when we have the patients that are the poor metabolizers of tamoxifen, and then you don't really have that as an out to cross them over to the tamoxifen. And as long as we're on that tamoxifen, and as long as the surgeon brought it up about the 2D6, I just want to say one other important thing. You know, we all know that patients have hypertension, and they can't drink grapefruit juice when they're on certain of the antihypertensive agents, and it's very important to remember with tamoxifen, some of the best drugs that help hot flashes, Paxil, Prozac, Zoloft, a number of the others, Wellbutrin, Zyben, Celebrex, Benadryl, they're all inhibitors of 2D6, and I just saw a lady who came back, I'm sure it wasn't related to this, but in December she had hot flashes and she got put on Zoloft by her gynecologist, and now she's got a recurrence in her breast. She was still taking her tamoxifen. I mean, just have to avoid those kind of drug interactions. I mean, it really is personalized medicine out there.